0: Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we look at the growing public health threat of long COVID with renowned Yale researcher Akiko Iwasaki on her nasal vaccine work. I
1: wish we had a warp speed-like effort to be able to deliver this to people, you know, as soon as possible, but we don't have that kind of support right now.
0: And patient advocate Fiona Lowenstein on her new book, The Long COVID Survival Guide. Factcheck.org's managing editor, Lori Robertson, checks in. And we end with a bright idea, improving everyday lives. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli. And Margaret Flinter.
2: The Center for Disease Control and Prevention reports that one in 13 adults in the United States has COVID symptoms that last at least three months after they initially came down with the virus. Millions of Americans say they are affected, even Virginia Senator Tim Kaine. But questions remain with critics of long COVID saying correlation is not causation and suggesting other issues are at play.
3: Joining us to discuss long COVID is Akiko Iwasaki, who's a Sterling Professor of Immunobiology and Molecular, Cellular and Developmental Biology at Yale University. Also with us is Fiona Lowenstein, editor of the Long COVID Survival Guide, How to Take Care of Yourself and What Comes Next. It's a book that focuses on stories and advice from 20 COVID long callers, as well as from experts. Welcome
2: to both of you uh, to Conversations on Health. Karen, let's begin with you, Akiko. I wonder if you could share with us what we really mean when we say long COVID. Uh, what's the definition you are using?
1: Right. So long COVID is definitely a condition that is heterogeneous and variable. And it's difficult to pinpoint because we don't have a biomarker but uh, it's essentially a disease that happens after the acute phase of COVID that lingers over four weeks from the starting of the acute phase. And in some people it's lasting for over two years now. Um, And it contains multiple different symptoms, Um, over 200 different symptoms have been reported involving pretty much every organ system. Um, And as I said, it's a heterogeneous disease that uh, that requires more investigation. Well, Fiona,
3: let me uh, turn to you. Doctors diagnosed you very early in the pandemic with COVID, uh, and you were hospitalized in March of 2020, which really was the very early days. You recently wrote that you're dealing now with long COVID symptoms, but they're milder than most. Share with us, uh, if you will, what you'd uh, like to about your personal story with long COVID.
4: You know I think one of the the most important takeaways from my personal story is that privilege and access that I had as a you know white economically privileged New Yorker with a primary care provider who knew me well played a huge part in my getting that initial COVID diagnosis, that test, um, the care when I needed to be hospitalized, and eventually, of course, understanding that what I was going through were most likely post-viral sequelae. Um, and so uh, it, it's it's been important to me to share my story as a way of sort of normalizing this experience, but also, of course, uh, because I had that positive test and kind of that, that marker that did essentially prove. That initial COVID infection. The symptoms that I deal with today are definitely on the milder end of the spectrum. It's it's crucial to understand that there are people with long COVID who are you know um, bedridden right now, who are, are not able to leave their homes. Um, you know there are folks who are using mobility aids to get around, um, and and people who are also deteriorating and not making progress in their recoveries. Although there are people who who like myself have have experienced some level of improvement. I credit a lot of my uh, recovery to my ability to take time off from work and rest and pace. And again, none of that would have been possible had I you know, had children that I needed to care for, um, had I not had flexibility uh, in terms of my financial situation and uh, my work. And unfortunately, that's just not the reality for a lot of patients and not the reality for many of the patients who wrote chapters in our book.
2: Well, Fiona, thank you so much for sharing your story and your insights. Akiko, uh, we recently had the Assistant Secretary of Health Rachel Levine as a guest, and she unequivocally stated that long COVID patients are not, quote, malingering. Uh, But as you know, there are skeptics. Uh, There was an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association highlighting data that raised questions about the very existence of long COVID, suggesting that patient symptoms were in their heads. And I'm wondering what your observations of that article are.
1: Right. Um, I'm just surprised to see that there are some skeptics that are still doubting the validity of this disease. Um, So we've done a lot of uh, immune profiling in people with COVID, uh, long COVID versus those who recovered. And we're seeing uh, distinct features of immune responses that are not found in the control groups. And so just by immunological features alone, we can distinguish people with long COVID. And um, it's very difficult to just imagine that.
3: Well, that is uh, such an important message for people to hear, and I think uh, probably very comforting uh, to people with long COVID. But I want to pick up on the point about your guide, Fiona, uh, which includes a focus on what you call medical racism and gaslighting. Uh, and indeed, uh, the guide has received praise from patient advocates who say they've been ignored in the past because they're women or gay. Uh, you talked about uh, some of the the benefits you appreciated uh, from something of a privileged status in terms of access to healthcare and economics, but this is another whole dimension that can really harm people. What's the lesson here for the healthcare community?
4: You know, none of these issues are are new, right? Um, inequal in access to healthcare has been an issue, certainly um, in, in our society and in our country for a long time. And so I think it's important to understand that these structural barriers were very much here before the pandemic, but were of course exacerbated by the healthcare overwhelm that occurred and continues to occur on a seasonal basis when we have these huge surges, you know, case surges for now not just COVID, but of course we're seeing for you know flu and RSV as well. Um and so the the stories in our books, we have stories from um, patients who came from communities that were disproportionately impacted by those high, high caseloads of acute COVID, right? Um, We have a patient in our book who writes about getting sick in the first wave um, in an urban black community in Baltimore, and what it was like to try and fight for care continually. Um, You know, we have a story from a Latina woman in Los Angeles, the same thing, trying to get doctors to take her seriously. And so I think For medical providers and for those treating long COVID, it's important to understand that some of those patients who don't have that initial, you know, COVID-19 diagnostic test or may not have that uh, record of being treated for, you know, post-COVID symptoms um, may have been facing some of those structural barriers, you know, medical racism, um, medical sexism. These are are very real barriers that existed prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. But have definitely been ac- exacerbated by just the level of healthcare need that that, we're, that is going on right now.
2: Uh, Akiko, your lab at Yale is partnering with uh, Mount Sinai Health System in a very important long COVID study uh, that's looking at distinguishing features of long COVID that you've identified through immune profiling. I wonder what you could share with us right now about what you've learned so far.
1: So we are collaborating with people from Mount Sinai, especially Dr. David Petrino's group, and looking at uh, deep immune profiling in people with long COVID, comparing that signature to people who recovered from COVID, as well as healthy controls who's never had COVID before. And what we're seeing, um, there, there are several key features that distinguish people with long COVID, such as um, elevated levels of exhausted T cells. Um, These exhausted T cells are only found in people who are fighting chronic infections or cancer, T cells that keep seeing the same antigen over and over. Uh, That's where we see these types of cells. Um, We also see that there's evidence for elevated Epstein-Barr virus reactivation in people with long covid and another feature that's very uh, uniformly different uh, between long COVID and control groups is the lower levels of cortisol, plasma cortisol we're seeing in long COVID patients. And because cortisol is such an important hormone that regulates so many different aspects of our physiology, we can basically assign a lot of the symptoms that they're you know, getting with this low levels of cortisol.
3: Well, maybe, uh, Akiko, if I could just uh, continue on that path around your research a little bit. We saw that you're also working uh, with Dr. Harlan Crumholz at Yale on the LISTEN study, which uh, stands for LISTEN to Immune Symptom and Treatment Experiences Now. I wonder if you could share with us uh, the kind of data you're looking at in this study, some of the hypothesis you're testing out, and, and what's the timeline for making any results known?
1: Yeah, so the Yale Listen study is with Dr. Harlan Krumholtz and um, a large team of investigators at Yale. And what we want to do with this study is to extend on what we did with Dr. Petrino at Mount Sinai and to really focus on different symptoms. For example, people with long COVID, as I mentioned, have over 200 different symptoms, but some symptoms are very debilitating, such as uh, internal tremors and vibrations, that people can control and that really affects the, you know, daily lives of these people. So we want to understand the immune features associated with these particular symptoms. The other group of um, people that we're investigating is um, post-vaccine related long haul. Um, Some people are reporting that a um, similar symptom to long COVID can be seen in people who've gotten the vaccination and we want to understand how that differs uh, in terms of the immunological uh, features compared to long COVID.
2: Fiona, let's uh, stick with the focus on research. And we understand you're part of a patient-led research collaborative that is showing uh, how you're adding patient voices to the uh, to the data and the mix. What have we, you learned so far about making sure that patient uh, voices are part of this important research?
4: Um, that is a group that was born out of the body politics support group, which I started in 2020. So They're a group of patients with uh, backgrounds in science and technology and medicine who basically started to observe these long-term symptoms in real time in their own bodies and in the anecdotes that people were sharing in this online support group in March and April and May of 2020. And they sought to survey that group. And so um, essentially did one of the first surveys um, that I'm aware of in in the United States on long-term symptoms following a COVID-19 infection and provided Us with some of that statistical data on, you know, at the time, I think the first survey was just, you know, a few hundred patients. They've gone on to, of course, work with much larger groups of um, patients and they're affiliated now with uh, several different research institutions. um, And of course, many of them have advised the NIH. Um, I've spoken alongside them uh, to the White House as well as the World Health Organization. Um, So I think what they're doing is is really powerful, both in the sense that in many ways, they kind of raised the alarm on this Mm -hmm. issue. Um, But they are also really changing the way that research is done. Um, They are building on what HIV AIDS advocates referred to as meaningful involvement of patients in setting research agendas and determining what research outcomes, we should be uh, prioritizing, you know, in terms of what we're looking for. And, you know, many of us may be aware of this, but what patients want to see prioritizing research is not always the same that's as right. what ends up you know, getting researched. And so that's really what they're trying to do is bridge that gap. And so we have actually a chapter in the book written by Lisa McCorkle, who's one of the founding members of yeah. the patient-led research collaborative, which aims to provide uh, readers with those tools to understand and navigate emerging research, because patients are doing that. They're reading the research online. We want to make sure that they have the uh, tools to basically understand what they're reading, vet misinformation that they might see pop up uh, in these support groups or potentially in, in media articles. I think, uh,
3: Mark, you remember we had
4: Patient Dave on yeah, the show right. early on. You know, what? I, I look
3: back on uh, 2020 and the beginning of 2021, uh, certainly a happy day in the pandemic was when the first batch of vaccines arrived on our door and the second happy day was when Paxlovid arrived uh, on our door and we had both a vaccine and we had uh, a therapeutic treatment and and know that this has really helped the availability of the antivirals has helped reduce the duration and and reduce the risk of long COVID as well. But Akiko, I understand yet another study is the US Department of Veteran Affairs uh, and the impact of Paxlovid. So tell us about that research.
1: Oh, sure. So the U.S. Veterans um, Affairs study basically looked at people um, who've gotten Paxlovid versus those who didn't, but had the same kind of uh, pre-existing conditions. Um, And essentially what they found was that people who took Paxlovid Uh, had a reduced risk of ultimately developing long COVID, whereas people uh, without Paxlovid um, developed it more frequently. So this is a a group of people that it's um, from the the veterans, so so the military uh, population, and it may or may not apply to um, the general public, but it's an important study that demonstrates that curving the course of infection and replication of the virus inside the person could help um, prevent long COVID from happening.
2: But you've also, uh, Kiko, been doing some groundbreaking work on the development of a nasal spray vaccine, uh, which research shows would be more effective at preventing infections. And I'm wondering, you know, you think about Omicron, it continues to mutate. How do you balance those two? The nasal vaccine sounds very promising, uh, but on the other hand, we continue to see this Forever mutating virus out there.
1: Yeah, so the nasal vaccine actually holds some promise um, in that regard because it can prevent transmission or at least reduce transmission between infected people. And the more we can prevent transmission, uh, the less likely that the virus has the you know opportunity to continue to mutate and evolve. And so that is why we're really pushing for this nasal vaccine strategy because having the immune resistance right in your nose uh, will prevent not only disease within that person but transmission from that person to the next person and that's ultimately how we need to think about controlling this pandemic is to provide some sort of herd immunity so that uh, the transmission can be reduced and then ultimately these mutation you know will not be happening because uh, we can sort of curtail this uh, spread of the virus throughout the world
2: are we in any clinical trial with the vaccine now where what can you tell us about timing and People would be very interested in this.
1: Yeah, we are you know, working very hard to develop this vaccine so we can uh, do a clinical trial in humans. We currently don't have enough funding to be able to make the vaccine that's appropriate for a human clinical trial. We're trying to raise funds through um, a company called Zanadu Bio, and uh, we're in the midst of fundraising, but it's difficult. Uh, I wish we had a, a warp speed-like effort to be able to deliver this to um, people you know, as soon as possible, but we don't have that kind of support right
2: now. And I know that's a very important issue for scientists that uh, the lack of uh, funding, and uh, we'll keep an eye on Congress during this session to see if they uh, can uh, move the ball forward.
3: We, we hate to think you have to get out and do fundraising for something <laughs> that is so, so desperately needed. <laughs> I did uh, note, a few moments ago, uh, you referenced Epstein-Barr virus, and we have been reading about how long COVID research might help us understand uh, how better to treat multiple sclerosis or chronic fatigue syndrome, and we're very intrigued with that. I wonder if you could comment
1: on that. So COVID is just one of the many pathogens that can cause this mysterious post-acute syndrome. Um, so long COVID is the you know latest to join that list, but there are a handful of viruses and bacteria and parasites that can similarly cause um, long-term symptoms. And many of these people develop these um, uh, ME-CFS uh, syndrome. And, and so we're hoping that by studying long COVID, and then we'll be recruiting uh, people with ME-CFS into uh, future studies with uh, Dr. David Petrino's group, um, to be able to understand the parallel between these diseases and whether one, one research can inform the other uh, because the underlying pathogenesis may be shared. But that's mm-hmm. something that we have to do more research on.
2: Fiona, I want to end up with uh, where you started and maybe your best advice for people and family members dealing with long COVID. How can they find the best help?
4: Well, the first thing I would say is if you are experiencing or think you are experiencing long COVID symptoms, track your symptoms um, and also track your daily activities. Um, I think in the support groups, we found it really helpful uh, to look at not only when you're experiencing symptoms, but, you know, what might have predated that symptom because a hallmark symptom of long COVID tends to be something we call post-exertional symptom exacerbation, the worsening of symptoms following a period of physical, mental, or emotional exertion. So that can be quite helpful as a starting point. Um, there's a lot of great advice in this guide. I, I would say it's a it's a good place to start. Um, Dr. Iwasaki wrote a beautiful afterword as well, kind of sharing with the reader what the future of research for this disease might look like. Um, but there's also a piece of advice that stands out to me right now from uh, Dr. Donna Kim Murphy, who is herself um, both a provider and a long COVID patient. Um, She writes that your your provider should be your partner in your long COVID journey. And that if you are not finding that kind of, you know, intellectual curiosity and partnership in your provider, um, you deserve to find that and and you should, you know, pursue that um, by whatever means necessary. Obviously, everyone, you know, we all have limitations in terms of, time and money and access. Um, But I think it's important for patients to feel empowered and know that that is what they deserve and that there are providers out there, you know, like Dr. David Petrino and and others who are part of this book, who are really committed to to forging that relationship with patients. Um, There is not a patient doctor divide on this issue. Um, A lot of us are really working together researchers, providers, patients to, to solve this collectively. Um, And so we're very grateful to to folks like Dr. Iwasaki um, and and Dr. David Petrino and others who are working with us to do just that.
3: Well, let's add Fiona to that list of people working together, uh, Congress. uh, And we know that uh, Democratic members of Congress have introduced a number of bills uh, to improve long COVID research basically funding uh, long COVID research and ensuring that there's access uh, to care for people who are suffering. And to date, uh, they haven't gotten Republican support. Uh, What are your thoughts on what the patient community and really all of us who care about this issue uh, do to make sure that that funding
4: for research and access is there? Well, I'd say that, you know, unfortunately, this isn't our first and likely won't be our last pandemic. Um, I think it's it's crucial to think about pandemic preparedness um, on both a, you know, in terms of legislation and on a societal level, long COVID definitely opened my eyes up to the kind of liminal space in between full recovery and illness. And I think that that's a, a very important thing to understand, not just for a disease like COVID. Um, that's a common experience, even, you know, if you break your ankle, right? There, there's not always immediate recovery. I think that societally, we tend to be quite uncomfortable with with that period of convalescence, with chronic illness, with disability. And so even as we move into the holidays, bringing those conversations out of the shadows and destigmatizing them and talking, you know, with your family and friends about what, what are your COVID safety measures and, and understanding that this is a very personal issue. It's also a collective issue. Um, and unfortunately it's not something that's that's just gonna go away, right? We like to compare COVID and the flu. MECFS may be related to long COVID. There are a lot of people who have been disabled by the flu as well, right? Um, there are other post-viral illnesses. Long COVID is not the first of its kind. There are ways we can mitigate these sorts of problems in the future and there are ways we can mitigate in the present. And I think talking about it openly is the first to getting there well Fiona for our listeners
3: MECFS why don't you say that Uh,
4: MECFS which is the abbreviated term for myalgic encephalomyelitis sometimes called chronic fatigue syndrome it's another uh, often infection associated complex chronic illness uh, that shares many similarities with long COVID in fact a large percentage of people living with long COVID have qualified uh, for the diagnosis, MECFS. Thank you. Well, I you. want
2: to thank you both for joining us. This issue is not going away and you really helped our understanding of long COVID and what patients are experiencing. And uh, thank you to our audience for being here. You can learn more about conversations on healthcare and sign up on our email updates at chcradio.com. Akiko and Fiona, thank you so much for shedding a light and illuminating this issue. Thanks,
4: Thanks. for having
5: Experts say the spike in RSV is most likely caused by an immunity gap created by the lack of exposure to the virus over the past couple of years. RSV is a common respiratory virus that usually causes mild flu-like symptoms, but it can be dangerous for some people, especially older people, infants, and young children the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported its surveillance systems were showing an increase in RSV detections and RSV-related emergency room visits and hospitalizations in multiple areas of the country. Each year, 58,000 to 80,000 children under five are hospitalized due to RSV infection. Dr. Paul Offit, a vaccine expert and pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, told us that this is the worst RSV year at his hospital. Offit said the restrictions established in 2020 to prevent the spread of COVID-19 virtually eliminated other respiratory viruses, creating what's called an immunity gap. And more people are susceptible to falling ill. RSV, which normally infects nearly all children before the age of two, is highly contagious and spreads when an infected person coughs or sneezes near other people or through contaminated surfaces. People with RSV are usually contagious for three to eight days, but some infants and immunocompromised people can continue to spread the virus for as long as four weeks. Opponents of the COVID-19 vaccine are incorrectly suggesting online that the unusually high number of infections is caused by the pediatric COVID-19 vaccines. There's no evidence of that. COVID-19 vaccination in the youngest children remains low. Less than 8% of children under 5 years old have received at least one dose. That rate of vaccination doesn't account for the spike in RSV cases. Children under six months of age are at the highest risk of hospitalization from RSV and, in fact, do have the highest rates of hospitalization now. And that age group isn't eligible for any COVID-19 vaccine. And that's my fact check for this week.
3: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. For several decades, the CDC has been screening new mothers in the postnatal period for issues that could signal a threat to the child's ability to thrive. The surveillance tool, the Pregnancy Risk Assessment Monitoring System, or PRAMS as it's known, is a population-based surveillance tool designed to identify groups of women and infants at higher risk for future health problems. Dr. Craig Garfield, founder of the Family and Child Health Innovations Program at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, thought they were leaving out an important part of the equation, the dads.
0: The CDC actually approached us because they have had for 35 years a survey of mothers in the perinatal period that gives us really good data on public health and the public health of mothers as they transition into motherhood. And they started to get back comments within the survey saying, why is the only question that you ask me about my partner is whether he hit, kick, beat, or slapped me during pregnancy? There's so many things that he did that helped me get through this pregnancy, and you don't ask about any of those.
3: Dr. Garfield, a researcher and pediatrician at Northwestern University, partnered with the CDC and the Georgia Department of Health to pilot the deployment of a new surveillance tool, Prams for Dads which turns out to be a very effective screening tool for broader public health issues as well.
0: We ask questions about the dad's physical health, dad's mental health, access to health care, dad's use of family leave, dad's involvement with the baby, ideas around breastfeeding, because we know from a pediatric perspective that the chances of mom successfully breastfeeding have a lot to do with if dad is supportive of that as well. And then what are the risky behaviors that dads might might be involved in that we need to know from a public health perspective? Smoking, drinking, having a gun, those sort of questions.
3: Dr. Garfield says identifying issues such as obesity, binge drinking, or smoking in a father at the time of birth is an excellent time to empower the new father to address those issues impacting not only his health, but the health of mother and baby as well. And this is a time when they are more motivated to improve health for their child.
0: As a pediatrician, I work with a lot of fathers. And the fathers I work with all are looking at the time of birth to really be the best kind of father they can be. And a lot of that has to do with being able to to maintain their own health so that they are there when their child gets older and they can be there to be with them, and what used to be thought of simply to provide for them financially really is no longer acceptable to many of the fathers. They want to be there and be involved in a different way than maybe their father or their grandfather was.
3: Since launching the pilot Prams for Dads, Dr. Garfield's team and the CDC have expanded the program, partnering with several other states, including Ohio and Massachusetts an inexpensive, easily deployed surveillance tool screening new dads for health concerns that could impact not only their newborn's future health, but their own health as well, and providing a reliable public health data set for individuals, families, clinicians, and population health as well. Now that's a bright idea.
2: I'm Mark Maselli.
3: And I'm Margaret Flinter.
0: Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and CHCradio.com.